0: hello and welcome to the gestalt it rundown for may 25th 2022 and uh, if you're worried out there don't panic because it's national towel day Uh, i am your tap dancing co-host tom hollingsworth and joining me as always and i say that because it's been a couple weeks since it's been always uh is my partner in crime mr stephen foskett
1: stephen welcome back to the show it's good to be back here i'm glad to be part of this Fabulous production, and I know where my towel is. Do you? I
0: do, in fact. It's uh, over there safe in case anyone wants to build a hyperspress express, hyperspace expressway lane through my front yard. Um, so pour yourself a nice glass of lunchtime wine, because it is National Wine Day. And uh, let's jump into some news stories that came up this week. Uh, the first one we actually covered on the rundown uh, back in April on the 13th, uh, but it's, it's kind of finalized now. Uh, that would be NetApp closing their acquisition of Instacluster this week. Uh, Now, as we kind of mentioned in the past, this is a bit of a big move for NetApp because they're trying to leverage some of their new cloud expertise um, and offer Instacluster as kind of a database as a service solution. But more importantly, they're trying to bring together uh, DevOps, FinOps, and SecOps teams into a unified cloud environment to kind of accelerate cloud workload migrations. And yeah, that sounds a little bit weird to me because we're talking about a stuffy old storage company talking about all this exciting new cloud stuff, right? But Stephen, you're the storage guru around here. Is this a major shift in strategy for NetApp? Or is this kind of, uh, to, to coin a phrase from Wayne Gretzky skating to where the money
1: is? Yeah, Tom, I'm actually going to take my storage hat off and just throw it over there in the corner and instead put on my cloud hat for this one, because that's really what this is all about. Um, it's important to understand that NetApp had a bit of a reorganization last year. And uh, one of the NetApp executives, Anthony Lai, remained in charge of sort of a nebulous part of the company, cloud, but not that cloud and not this other cloud and not this cloud product and not that cloud product. So there was a lot of like head scratching, like, wait, what exactly is Lai doing there? Well, here's what Lai is doing there. He's building a fully autonomous uh, cloud sidecar onto the side of the NetApp storage company And this cloud sidecar is not bound by history. And that, I think, is incredibly important. And that really helps explain what is going on here with acquisitions like Spot, like Cloud Checker, like Data Mechanics and Filament, and now Instacluster. What Anthony Lai is doing is essentially building a cloud conglomerate uh, basically Cloud Ops, DevOps, Fin-Ops, Secops, like you said building a, a, a conglomerate on the side of NetApp, except instead of having him do it as part of some sort of um, independent company funded by venture capital, he's doing it as part of this uh, public and, honestly pretty successful storage company. And what this means, and this is actually pretty clever. I'm going to give uh, NetApp's management a little uh, credibility here, a little nod. Uh, It it allows the company to do the mythical changing the wheels while the car is in motion or whatever, you know, they say. Um, Essentially, you know, Anthony Lai is building an independent business here that focuses not on ONTAP, which is NetApp's traditional storage platform, but on all new technology, uh, centering, it seems to me, around spot, but really centering around uh, cloud operations and not bound by the history of the company. This is an interesting take because, frankly, uh, most companies have found this to be the single greatest challenge. It's always hard to basically move away from an old business and into a new business, and very few companies have succeeded in doing that. Uh, Apple, for example, recently stopped selling iPods because every iPhone has eliminated the need for that product. But that took some major uh, uh, will on the part of Apple's management to give up a cash cow business like the iPod. And uh, you know it, it takes a company like that to do this. and and frankly, that's what NetApp is is trying to figure out a way around. They can't just stop selling ontap and storage arrays but they know they have to change the company. Anthony Lai is changing the company and that's what's going on here and that's what Instacluster is all about. And yes, it's an interesting product with interesting people in an interesting space, but really what this is, is NetApp evolving for the future. And for that, I'm gonna tip the cloud hat and uh, ignore the storage hat in the corner. Tom, no matter how you slice it, Cisco's previous quarter wasn't great. The company reported revenue of $12.8 billion, which is down from their projection of $13.8 billion. That's bad enough. But Cisco actually lowered the forecast for the remainder of the year uh, to 5.5% growth instead of 6% growth. CEO Chuck Robbins attributed these wild numbers uh, to a complex path in front of the company, which includes significant issues with the ongoing chip shortage and, uh, frankly, some customer headwinds. Tom... What's going on here? Is Cisco feeling the effects of the global supply chain, or is this something more? So they are
0: definitely feeling the effects of the global supply chain. We we can't deny that. But it actually is a little bit more... Um, it turns out that there was a really interesting thing that happened at the end of la- Cisco's last quarter. They really wanted people to buy stuff like a lot, please book, book your revenue. And, and anyone who's ever bought from any kind of uh, uh, vendor or somebody who kind of works on that model, you know, that boy, that last week of the quarter, it's wheeling and dealing time. We're going to do whatever it takes to get these things shipped out the door so that we can, we can worry about that. Well, rewind three more months beyond that. And you're kind of looking at, say, around the first of the year, because uh, remember that Cisco's, cal- Cisco's fiscal quarters don't match up with the calendar year. So their end of their previous quarter ended at the first of the calendar year or thereabouts. They were really, really trying to get products shipped out the door in that quarter because at the beginning of, the, of calendar year 2022, all their component prices were going to go up because they were going to start building in inflation and a bunch of other stuff, right? So Cisco sold a whole, whole bunch of equipment. Now what? Well, we look to exercise giant Peloton for the answer to this question. So remember how Peloton was making money hand over flywheel at the beginning of the pandemic because now that everybody's cooped up in their apartment or their house and they have to deal with their family? They need to exercise, and so everybody went out and bought a Peloton bike, Peloton treadmill. I don't know Peloton pull up bar or whatever it was they sold, and everyone's like, "Man, Peloton's crushing it! They're gonna they're gonna take over the industry." And then the pandemic stopped, and all of a sudden Peloton's broke. So the question was, did Peloton sell a whole bunch more equipment because everybody wanted to exercise, and they've expanded the market, or? Did Peloton pull their customers forward? And these were people that were going to buy a Peloton anyway. And they just bought it earlier than they were expecting because now they needed it. And as soon as the as soon as the market developed around those people, now nobody wants to buy a Peloton because all the people who were going to buy it bought it. Well, I'd say that Cisco's problem is the Peloton pull forward problem. Everybody who was going to buy Cisco switches to upgrade their gear bought them in December when they wanted to uh, you know, get it at a cheaper rate. Well, if I'm going to have to buy it anyway in the next year or so, I might as well buy it while it's cheap, right? And so that means that that quarter looked really good. And now the next quarter looks like crap because everybody who was going to buy that Switch bought it already. And that's a problem. Not just because now your revenues look like crap. Remember what Chuck Robbins has been trying to do at Cisco for the last few years? it has been trying to turn them into a software company. Guess what? They're not there yet. So the question is, can he turn that aircraft carrier fast enough to keep it from sinking because of the hardware revenues being down? Because you can't solve the global chip shortage. That's not on you. That's on everybody else who makes chips. What you can do is you can try to diversify your product lines away from needing to ship more hardware. That's a harder problem to solve, and I don't know that Chuck's going to get it done soon. So this bad quarter makes Wall Street blanch and... For better or for worse, Wall Street seems to think that every year is three months long and that's the only visibility that they have. In six months, this could change. It's going to be a radically different discussion because chip plants are going to come online. They're going to have more supply, whatever. The question is whether or not the investors are going to be willing to stick with them that long. And I don't know how that's going to work out. All right, Stephen, one of the largest data centers in the U.S. is going to have a new owner because a Digital Bridge, which is a digital infrastructure investment firm, is buying the Las Vegas-based Switch, for $34.25 a share, which, if you do the math, works out to be just around $11 billion. Uh, the transaction is going to take Switch private once again. Uh, now, you're probably wondering to yourself, who exactly is Digital Bridge? Well, it turns out that they've been buying up data centers like Vantage and Data Bank. So they uh, seem to have a data center of data centers. Um, switch has expanded a lot of their offerings uh, we've toured the one in las vegas before but we also know that they have uh, locations located in garden spots like reno uh, grand rapids michigan and in atlanta georgia um, they're one of the largest data center providers in the world and uh, rob roy has definitely built quite an empire over there um, steven what is the final goal for digital bridge here by buying supernat for such a huge price
1: yeah, well, let me just start by saying that Switch is probably the most interesting data, com- data center company in the world. And um, that's because it has some of the most interesting and innovative uh, people in the world working for it, starting with Rob Roy, as you mentioned, but extending, uh, frankly, as far as I can tell, all the way down inside the company. Uh, one of the things that I love about Switch is not just is it impressive, but the company is committed to what's called ESG in terms of governance. In other words, they are uh, focusing on good governance and sustainability and environmental awareness in terms of data center activities. It's one of the largest uh, users of solar energy. Uh, They have really excellent approaches to uh, power and cooling efficiency in their data centers. Effectively, Switch is kind of what we wish all data center companies were. The company went public back in 2017, but frankly, the stock has never really impressed. In fact, uh, it dropped by uh, more than two thirds uh, within a couple of years. And although it's been climbing back, it really hasn't gained all that much. Uh, this acquisition will kind of um, almost double the original IPO price, but that's not all that impressive uh, for Wall Street types. What it is going to do, though, is it's going to bring this uh, wonderfully innovative uh, ESG-focused company into a bigger uh, world where it can make more of a difference. So as you mentioned, Switch has these five uh, purpose-built data center campuses. Uh, The the Las Vegas one is really impressive, as is uh, the Citadel in Reno, the Pyramid in Grand Rapids, uh, the Keep in Atlanta, and The Rock in Austin, which uh, was acquired from Data Foundry. Um, and this company is going to uh, bring all those ideas to the rest of uh, Mark Gansey's uh, data centers, I believe. And I think that that's probably gonna improve the overall efficiency of IT. So this deal, uh, which was announced May 11th, uh, and we kind of overlooked here at the rundown, is really going to have more of an impact outside of Switch than inside. And I think that it's good for the industry overall. If you're someone who's on the fence about working in the field of security research because of the fear of prosecution, then you might like this news story. The US Department of Justice announced last week that they've changed their policy of bringing charges under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. Now, if an individual or company is performing good faith security research investigation or correction of a security flaw, they will no longer be prosecuted under the CFAA. This policy change is meant to encourage others to help plug security holes and find flaws that could be exploited by foreign actors, while also making it harder for companies to file charges under the CFAA in an effort to avoid being embarrassed by third parties. The new DOJ policy takes place immediately. Tom, are we going to see a new rise in ethical hacking?
0: I think we should, and I know that there's a lot of people out there in the security research space that kind of have to be very, very careful about the way that they toe the line. Um, Go back to Sneakers, one of my favorite movies of all time. That's essentially what this entails. You are paying people to break into your stuff. But when you pay people, when people pay you, like there's rules of engagement that are written down there. You're not allowed to attack these systems. You're not allowed to use these methods. And it kind of almost feels like you're tying the, the red team's hand behind their back in order to make sure that, you know, either they're very narrowly focused on one thing that you're worried about, or you don't want to get embarrassed by the fact that, you know, they call Eddie Veteran Accounting and get the password to the modem. Uh, and so what's happened is, is that there's a lot of companies out there who have kind of taken a risk on this by saying, well, I'm just going to go ahead and investigate some of the stuff that's going on. And oh, hey, I found a huge flaw. I'm going to notify you that you have a huge flaw and I'm going to give you the opportunity to fix it before I disclose it. And then what the company does is threaten to sue the researcher because you violated the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act because you hacked my system without my permission. But I didn't do it to steal things. And so that's where the disconnect has been. I'm trying to do things in good faith and tell you how to fix them. Maybe I'm trying to claim a bug bounty. I mean, I know there are people who make a lot of money off of that. But maybe I'm just trying to do it because I want to protect you and you're going to sue me for it. So the Department of Justice is effectively saying is we're not going to do that anymore. If you can prove that you were doing good faith security research, we're not going to press charges because that's what people should be doing. Now you're probably thinking to yourself, well, isn't that going to cause a lot more hacking? Yeah, it is for good faith, which means you're not stealing things, which means you're not dropping Trojans on people's machines, which means you're not trying to gain a foothold. Oh, you know, like the foreign hackers that are doing those things any one of the bear crews, Lazarus, any of the APT groups operating out of China, you know, the ones who want to hack you and they're not going to be nice about it. They're not going to write a fun little report and give you the notification that you've got a 9.8, you know, severity alert. No, they're just going to get into your system and steal your secrets and then use that as a foothold to infect other systems. So I think this is a change that's been a long time coming and it kind of follows policy changes in the Department of Justice of we're not going to prosecute things that probably should never have been prosecuted in the first place. And when you consider that the CFAA was passed in the 80s in response to War Games, the movie with a young Matthew Broderick, that should tell you how closely we need to look at this law and redefine it so that we don't have to have these memorandums from the Department of Justice saying, yeah, I know technically we're supposed to sue you if you hack things. But we're not going to. By the way, for those of you out there, this is a reminder that good faith security hacking doesn't mean sharing your network, your Netflix password with your friends. So you're probably still going to get in trouble for that. All right, Stephen, after announcing the new C7G instances based on their in-house Graviton 3 chips at AWS reInvent last year... Amazon has finally put these suckers into production. Graviton 3 is an unusual design because it's a monolithic CPU die, but it has chiplet-based support elements. Stranger still, they're on a three-socket motherboard. Steven, what exactly is the attraction
1: of Graviton 3? Well, Tom, uh, the attraction of Graviton 3 is that we have a uh, server-class CPU that is actually really looking good compared to what some of the next generation CPUs from the big guys are and is delivering the goods in Amazon AWS. So let me give you a little bit of background here. So uh, as you might have heard, Amazon AWS has an internal group called Annapurna Labs, which develops uh, their own hardware including uh, the famous uh, Nitro DPU, which is what kind of kicked off the whole DPU mania that we're seeing in enterprise, along with the Graviton uh, CPUs, uh, the Tranium AI training cores, which was really you know kind of a letdown on code names. Sorry, guys. And the Inferentia inference engines. Um, the Graviton was originally basically just a scaled up Nitro But the Graviton 2, which came in 2019, really, I think, set the world uh, on notice. Because here we had a uh, a high-performance 64-core ARM-based CPU in the cloud that used the Neoverse N1 cores from ARM. So basically, it offered really good performance, 64 cores, low price, low energy consumption. Those things were pretty popular. Well, Graviton 3 is uh, really kind of an update to that but with a lot of extras. So let's start with the chip itself. So it may not look like much because we've still got 64 cores, but um, these are Zeus V1 cores, which are uh, much more powerful, but importantly, this is point number one about next-generation CPU architecture. Importantly, they include accelerators for floating point and machine learning, which is really what we're seeing as a differentiator uh, across the board in uh, next-generation CPUs. The next thing that's interesting about this is this is a chiplet-based design, which may ring a bell if you've been following AMD and Intel and Apple, uh, for that matter, in terms of of chip design. Uh, Interestingly though, what AWS decided to do here is the the CPU core itself is actually a single chip, not just a a chiplet. Um, It's the supporting elements around it that are chiplets. In other words, uh, unlike uh, what Apple did with the M1 Ultra or what um, you know AMD and Intel look to be doing, uh, whereas which which has kind of a core or a few cores on a chiplet, and then they marry those together to make many cores. Now we got 64 cores on one chiplet, and then it's the surrounding chips that are separate chiplets. And what this means is that AM or Apple. Uh, Sorry, AWS, man, we got a lot of A's in here. They can upgrade this chip if they want with new supporting chiplets. So if they want to include a better IO or you know maybe some kind of a storage processor or something like that, uh, maybe even bring the Nitro on board, they can do that without having to rev the basic CPU, which is kind of cool. Um, as you mentioned, one of the weirdest things about this thing is that the, they're being rolled out with a three socket uh, motherboard. That's just strange, because usually you'll, you know, you'll see one socket, two socket, four socket, sometimes more socket, but three socket is something that we haven't really seen a lot of. Well, the reason they're doing that is because it's actually not a three socket motherboard. It's actually three systems on a motherboard. Each of these boards uses a one of AWS's Nitro DPUs to coordinate external I.O. between these three basically autonomous systems. So instead of being a three-socket motherboard, imagine this as a three-node motherboard with a Nitro managing I.O. And then it becomes clear what they're doing here. It's all about increased density, increased efficiency, and frankly, giving access to all this power to uh, AWS customers. So the bottom line here is that uh, Gravitron 3 may not look as much of an upgrade from, from two as you might think, but it really, really is, especially where it matters, which is in the use case and the pocketbooks of Amazon AWS customers. All right, Stephen. Well,
0: um, let's jump into a couple of stories that came out this week that uh, require a little bit more analysis. Uh, the first of these was probably the biggest shock to the virtualization community that we've seen in a lot of months. Uh, Because over the weekend, the press noted that chip giant Broadcom is in talks to purchase VMware. Yes, that's right. The former stepchild of Dell and EMC was spun off less than a year ago, back in September, into its own separate company that Michael Dell and Silver Lake still own pretty big parts of. Um, But the news mentioned that Broadcom has been looking to expand their software portfolio. And that would mean that VMware would join CA and Symantec in the Broadcom suite. Uh, The reported valuation of VMware is north of $40 billion, which could put the acquisition price as high as $60 billion, which Broadcom has the money to do, but there are a lot of problems with that. Mostly the community reaction. It was largely negative. And when I say largely, I mean like 95%. Uh, Many analysts are weighing in on this, and I believe that I heard things like disaster dumpster fire, horrible decision. So I'd say the analyst community is pretty united in their, their viewpoint that this isn't a good thing. Um,
1: Stephen, what's your stance on this? Well, this is pretty weird story, honestly. Um, most of you listening to this are going to be like, wait, Broadcom? Don't they make some kind of like, I don't know, like chips or something? No. Uh, Broadcom isn't that company and hasn't been that company for a while. Uh, they have acquired other uh, software companies, including CA and Symantec Security um, in the last few years. And this has made Broadcom into more of an integrated IT company than anything. But if you think about those two companies, what do they do? And how are they, what's their place in IT infrastructure? Um, Honestly, Broadcom's real focus is in buying mature companies that will generate revenue for a while um, at a very high rate. In other words, um, it's not quite a retirement home for companies, but it's certainly not a dynamic uh, developer of technology. If VMware goes to Broadcom, essentially, we're going to see a switch in VMware from an innovative product company that's trying to compete in uh, the latest and greatest trends in the in data center and cloud to becoming a company that's like CA trying to make money from the enterprise, which from an investor standpoint is great. Uh, from a nerd standpoint, not so great. Uh, the other question here I think though is why Broadcom and why not you know, literally anyone else in the IT industry? And I think that's actually a very valid point. Um, Certainly Broadcom has the money and the interest to buy this thing, but wouldn't it be better with, I don't know, almost anyone else in the industry? Uh, Some of the uh, usual suspects that have been suggested would include, well, Dell would have been on the list, but I guess that's not gonna happen. Uh, HPE, that's not probably gonna happen either. But what about Microsoft? What about um, NVIDIA? What about Intel? What about AMD? What about almost anyone else in the industry? Uh, Or what about, how about we don't buy VMware and we let the company actually grow and prosper on its own instead of snapping it up just as soon as it uh, becomes independent of Dell. Um, I think those are all real good points. Uh, Basically, I'm just scratching my head and kind of hoping that this doesn't happen because I like VMware, I like the direction they're taking, I like the products, and I really don't wanna see this acquisition happen. How about anybody else? Well, I mean,
0: that's just crazy talk, Stephen. I mean, why would we let a perfectly good company continue to do what a perfectly good company does, which is make money for their shareholders, when we can own it instead and run it into the ground? Yeah, I, I my take on this is very similar to yours. And, and I think, honestly, that this is a lot like IBM, where, you know, and disclaimer, old IBMer, and I worked for... Tom Watson's IBM before it became what it is now, which is some kind of weird Kindrel thing, Red Hat BM. Um, essentially, IBM makes money off of mainframes. Like that's their bread and butter, right? They are effectively, uh, I believe that the financial term is like a rents company. Like they are basically paying the bills with their one technology. And I don't, VMware is not there yet. They are definitely trying to make themselves an important part of the cloud by essentially becoming the hybrid cloud company, right? Oh, hey, you can run VMs or you can run Kubernetes on-premises or in the cloud. Hybrid model will help you fix that, right? Yeah, no big deal. Except the problem is, is that that's a hard enough row to hoe when you're on your own and you're good at it. When you suddenly have Broadcom sitting on top of you making these decisions, yeah, I mean, that's not going to be easy. That's the reason why they spun out in the first place is because by being a neutral third party, they have the ability to go to the on-premises data center people and sell their wares and try to, you know, kind of sideload with Amazon and with Azure. And, and you know, Amazon or Microsoft buying them would actually be a terrible idea because of that, because then you're kind of locked into whatever they're gonna offer you. But I think importantly, Broadcom just wants to make a splash like they just want to say hey look we spent a whole bunch of money and look at this cool software company that we own now and in seven months nobody's gonna care like that it's just gonna kind of disappear into thin air because when's the last time you heard Symantec in the news yeah that's right other than this I probably you you haven't for a while in fact I had forgotten that they'd even bought CA and remember how CA used to be yeah that should tell you if 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 CA is out of the news for not screwing up companies and Broadcom is because they own CA, that should give you a lot of fair warning. I'm not going to say that this is going to fall apart because we've even heard that the possibility exists that they could be talking about this tomorrow as of this recording. I think what's going to happen is the same thing that happened when Broadcom tried to buy Qualcomm. The regulators are going to step in and go, Mm-mm, I don't think this is a good idea. And uh, we're going to kind of see that go poof. Um, Speaking of regulators, Stephen, there was another interesting story that I wanted to get your take on because it's kind of fun. So um, most everybody who listens to the rundown knows that if you're a Western company that's operating in China, you actually aren't allowed to do that unless you are basically a joint venture with a local Chinese company, right? Because that's how Chinese regulations are. Now, ARM is no different because they are actually operating in China as an entity called China ARM. Okay. Okay. Well, last week it was announced that a mysterious company called LotCap Group signed a letter of intent to buy a 51% stake in Arm China. Hmm, that's weird. Here's what's making it even weirder: This comes after reports that Arm China CEO Alan Wu has refused to step down after the board implemented a plan to replace him with two co-CEOs. SoftBank, remember those guys? They own 49% of Arm China. So they own the minority stake of that joint venture. They've been trying to distance themselves from Mr. Wu for quite a while because you know what they want to do? Take Arm public. Huh. Why would they want to do that? Oh yeah, that's right. That whole acquisition thing that happened last year between NVIDIA and Arm that didn't pan out. So essentially, Stephen, what we've got is a mysterious company buying a majority stake to possibly get rid of a ceo that doesn't want to leave so that a company that owns in a minority stake of a different company can take that company public to maybe pay off some of the stuff that the other company is doing and if this sounds like an episode of dynasty you're not the only one thinking that steven what's going on here
1: i have no idea why are you asking me no, the truth is that nobody has any idea what's going on here. I mean, this plot thickens. Like you said, um, so uh, Arm was forced to basically create this uh, joint venture in order to continue to operate in China. Uh, the uh, the the Arm owns 49% and uh, different Chinese entities own the 51%. Um, as you said, they've been trying to get rid of the CEO. And it's funny, as late as April 30th, it was reported that the CEO was... Uh, out uh, that Wu was no longer uh, CEO of ARM China, but I, I don't think he got the memo. Um, and and it certainly seems like uh, whoever LotCap are uh, didn't get the memo, or maybe they did. Um, I just don't know what to make of this. I mean, the whole thing is so strange. It's so um, it, it, opaque. We we have no idea who these people are, um, who's behind this uh, purchase whether this is really an offer or whether this is some sort of hardball stock manipulation game that's being played in the Chinese stock market. Uh, We don't know if this is related to uh, SoftBank's ownership of ARM and the collapse of the Nvidia deal or some effort, as you said, to raise money uh, from SoftBank to go public with ARM. Um, We don't know anything. Now it is interesting, though, if you follow the the dotted lines here, that SoftBank did want to get rid of uh, the CEO and management of Arm China. This would effectively do that. SoftBank does want to float Arm as a, a public company. This would give them the money to make that happen, and the opaque ownership of whoever LotCap is. Uh, means that there could indeed be some sort of connection there between them and SoftBank. So this could be uh, related to that, or that could be completely off base. And I have no idea what I'm talking about, because that would be just as likely. So basically, uh, my answer here, Tom, is the famous, and hmm. we'll see what happens. Certainly going to be watching.
0: Oh, Stephen, being neutral and politically correct about all of this, how, how you know, I'm just going to go out there and say it. This is a direct result of what happened with the arm, the failed arm acquisition. SoftBank is mad and they're losing money. And I think that what happened was reading the tea leaves, because we, let's be fair, you and I talked about this ad nauseum for a long time. And what was the thing that we were the most worried about? It wasn't the British regulators coming down. It was the Chinese regulators. We knew that even if the British regulators said that this was going to go through, the Chinese regulators were not going to let it happen, period. We are not going to let an American company buy something that we consider to be critical to the national infrastructure of China. And so by effectively kind of tipping their hand early, that allowed the British regulators to kind of step up and, you know, I'm terribly troubled by what this could be, which is British for, oh my God, freak out. Um, So they didn't have to show their hand. But I think SoftBank Remembers, just like the North remembers, SoftBank remembers. And so what happened was they decided that they needed to get rid of the CEO because they knew there was no plan that they could do that would allow them to make money off of their investment that would go through if the current CEO and his group were there. So they tried to remove them and it didn't work because he didn't want to go. And we've seen that in other political areas in China recently where forces have caused someone to want to step down and they didn't. And in other cases that has been a little bit more overt to make them leave. And so I think that this is kind of a a shadow hand move to basically say, leave, or we're going to make you leave financially speaking. We're going to buy out the company. We're going to kick you out. We're going to replace the whole board. And then we're going to let SoftBank make money off of this. So, I would not be shocked to see if maybe Alan Wu exits if this venture ends up either falling apart or is revealed to actually be capitalized by SoftBank somehow, so that at the very minimum, they can take the Western part of ARM public so that they can recoup some of that investment and potentially package it up and sell it off. I don't know that this is going to end up working the way that they think, because what we could actually see is this Chinese-owned venture deciding that they don't want anything to do with a potential IPO and kind of reaving the company in half and causing the Chinese version of it to kind of become insular and doing their own development and basically creating a Chinese version of the ARM chip, which would suit the Chinese government just fine. I don't think they'd cry one bit. I don't know. I I hope it's not nefarious. I hope I'm not like, you know, tilting at windmills and trying to see conspiracy theories where they're not. But man, if it looks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it sounds an awful lot like a hostile takeover to me. All right. Well, enough prognosticating about geopolitical stuff. Let's talk about some exciting things that are coming up in the week ahead. Um, Actually, it's not next week, but in a couple of weeks, uh, June 12th through the 16th is Cisco Live. That'll be taking place in Las Vegas, Nevada. And we're going to be there. We're going to be having Tech Field Day at the event. The 14th and 15th of June, we have presentations from Cisco, OpenGear, and IP Fabric. You're definitely going to want to tune in. Check the website, techfieldday.com, to find out more
1: information about that. Stephen, what have you got coming up after that? Well, I am pretty excited to have Cloud Field Day return uh, June 22nd through 24th, uh, Wednesday through Friday. Uh, We've got a lot of great companies, a lot of folks flying in from around the world and joining us remotely for that event. Uh, So please do tune in. Also, I'm going to make a quick pitch here. We have posted all the videos from AI Field Day. So if you're interested in the AI space, uh, check out the Tech Field Day on YouTube for those videos absolutely and if you
0: want to see anything that you uh we've been working on or any of the upcoming things that we have like we said, go to techfieldday.com check it out also up at the top of that page is a little yellow box that has our newsletter sign up for that and we'll send you information about upcoming field day events to figure out you know if something is more your speed and networking or mobility or storage or security we'll let you know when those events are happening because that's what we like to do we like to keep you up to date on all the things that are important which is why we have the Rundown every Wednesday at 1230 Eastern Time. If you have any news stories that you'd like to suggest for us, please make sure you tweet at Gestalt IT. Use the hashtag, excuse me, use the hashtag Rundown, because that will uh, let us uh, check it out. Because sometimes in our busy schedules, we might miss that a data center is being acquired or that a shadow organization is trying to buy out majority controlling stake of a company. Um, but we want to make sure that we cover those because that's what this is about it's about enterprise news and it's about making sure that you have everything you need to do in order to make sure that you have a great day so for tom Hollingsworth and for Stephen foskett thank you very much for tuning in for the rundown we'll be back next week with more great stories but until then enjoy your time and if you're in the u.s enjoy a slightly longer holiday with memorial day coming up and we'll see you all soon